1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Well, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. And You know, as we celebrate this wonderful time of the year and particularly focus on the true reason for the season, a lot of us begin to think about what's coming in the new year, focusing on 2020, thinking about many of the things, the habits that you'd like to change. We call them New Year's resolutions, although probably few of us, if we make them, ever really keep them. What are your New Year's resolutions? Maybe to lose weight, save money, find a new job. How about the New Year's resolution that you can use to start now, focusing on better health? Joining me in studio with this edition of Healing Habits Now, Dr. John Duong of the Holistic Health Center. Dr. Duong, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to you. And let's talk about this, the notion that people like to set New Year's resolutions and focus on all the changes they're going to make in the coming year and sadly usually along about... January the 2nd, most of that sort of gets set by the wayside. But the issue of new health in a new year is maybe one that we should really, for the first time, take seriously and, as you suggest, rather than waiting to do it to the first of the year, to begin those healing habits
2: now. Before we say that, I want to say Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to my patients, the KFAX listeners, and my future patients that want to seek to to live a better quality of life. Happy New Year's. Merry Christmas. Just to answer your question, is that actions, when you feel the right moment, you have to do it now. It's all about the heart. Any pain, any health conditions, the solution is inside your body. When you cannot get the solutions, it's because they, they always procrastinate. It's always tomorrow. Tomorrow is there, always better than today, so that's not taking the responsibility. So what we need to do is that always listen to your heart. If your heart saying that I want my pain to be better, I want my health to be better, so I can serve God. Okay. So if that is the the message, you need to take actions. So now you can activate the bodies, so that the body can heal.
0: How much of this is a a heart set and a mindset? And I ask that question because whether we're talking about people that are suffering from type 2 adult onset diabetes, maybe they've got problems with arthritis, lower back pain, neck pain, maybe a work or sports-related injury that plagues them, so often the attitude is, well... Getting better, that's all up to the doctor. The doctor's in charge of that. I'm just the recipient here.
2: Is that an erroneous way of thinking? That's the old model. The doctors will take care of you. In reality, it's not healing that way. Just look at a history. Like, For example, like if people have diabetes, the more that you're trying to lower down your blood sugar with uh, medications, you seems that you're taking one medication after another medications and another medication. True, lower down the blood sugar. But in reality, is it an insulin resistant that we need to find out? So the medications is lowering down the blood sugars, true. But it doesn't fix the problem. The problem is the health conditions that you have. So what we need to do is that we need to help the body to heal from within. So what's wrong with my body? Why is my sugar high? Is it insulin resistant? What is the underlying reason for that insulin resistance? Do I lack of exercise? Do I have a diet issue? Or is it my mindset that I cannot control my eating habits? The first thing is that we all have to do is that don't point the finger elsewhere. Point the fingers towards our body because that's the treasure that God gave us. The treasure is us. The problem is us that's creating it. So you point the fingers to your body, and now you admit that you have an issue. Now you are willing to change so that now you can make the appropriate changes, take the appropriate actions, get the right coaching, find out the right doctors to assist you, to guide you, so now your body can heal from within. It is your responsibility to fix any chronic pain or any health challenge, any disease that you have, your body can heal from within.
0: Many people listening right now who are dealing with age-related sickness, disease, be it obesity, be it chronic back pain. We mentioned earlier about diabetes. The list goes on and on. Arthritis is certainly part of that list. Oftentimes, patients will say, I've gone to see a doctor. The doctor seems to be focused on not relieving the pain at the source, but rather simply masking the pain by providing medication, pain pills. I have a bad knee. They want to give me an injection. All of the focus seems to be on suppressing pain as opposed to getting to the source of the pain and addressing that source. Are you then suggesting, Dr. Duong, that what we really need to do is to change our attitude and our approach when it comes to better health?
2: You have to change your attitude. Is the heart, the mind, right? It's the heart and mind. You need to change that. And then also you have to take action to make the appropriate changes so that you can heal. For example, I said that in your show earlier, if, you, if people haven't listened to the show, they can always go to KFAX and type in my name, Dr. John Duong, Healing Habits. So the previous one I said about low back is what are the costs of disherniation, low back pain, the severe, I'm talking about severe and low back pain, disherniations, bulging disc, arthritis. I said there's two reasons that is leading to degenerative disc, herniated disc. It's the loading force and inflammatory process. So what we need to do is that we need to find out this, the reason why there's a loading force that's continue wear and tear the disc down. That's why you have those issues. Another thing is the inflammatory process. It's your digestive system or your internal organs that's creating the information. Even your thoughts can create information. So we need to find out all the above, like the physical loading force, the inflammatory process from the internal system, your mindset. So now we need to make all those appropriate changes to help to fix the low back. And we can share with any health conditions. Any like diabetes, thyroid, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis. For example, the show that we did previously is uh, rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis. What is all? They the autoimmunity is the is the process that is about the inflammatory process. So we need to understand what are the triggers of causing the inflammatory process that lead into this pain conditions or health conditions that the person has. So we need to go back to the basic. It's to fix the human frame, which is the structures. Fixing what is the cause of the inflammatory process. What's the cause of our internal system not functioning the way it should be. There's testing that can be done. Genetic testing, blood testing, stool testing. So that's three. And then also go back to the hope. The hope is the healing from within the system, I told my patient this. The healing is not everywhere, anywhere. It's inside you. You need to open your heart so that you can heal. The healing is inside you. God gives you the power to heal. The healing is inside you already. You need to open it up so your body can heal so that you can live a better quality life. I keep saying that, but a lot of people does not understand it. The healing is inside you
0: already. This time of year, of course, as I mentioned, we typically
2: focus on New Year's resolutions,
0: the things that we'd like to change for ourselves in the coming new year. What are your recommendations, doctor,
2: in terms of beginning to develop those healing habits now? The first thing that we always have is cheerful heart. If you decide to come uh, to get assistance from me or not, but always keep a cheerful heart because cheerful heart is the best medicine. I coach my patients, you have to have a cheerful heart. Count your blessing one by one. Why? Because that's gratitude. When you count your blessing, you have you are filled with gratitude in your mind, in your system. The most important thing is feeling. Heart gives you the feeling. When you have the right feeling, you will have a cheerful heart. That's the best medicine that you can take. So my recommendation is Count your blessing, have a cheerful heart, live the life.
0: To start the new year out on the right foot with the right attitude, why not consider a healthier life today? Call the Holistic Health Center at area code 510-818-1668 and schedule your appointment. That's 510-818-1668 or go online to HealingHabitsNow.com. That's HealingHabitsNow.com. Dr. Certain, we hope and pray that people will develop the mindset, as you're suggesting, that begins to focus on better health, better living, and hopefully be able to put their
2: debilitating pain behind them and enjoy
0: the kind of life that God intended
2: for them to enjoy. Exactly. The healing is inside. And if people miss any of the show that we have, they can always search us on KFAX, KFX, and Healing Habits or Dr. John
0: Duan. And again, to schedule your appointment, call area code 510-818-1668. That's 510-818-1668 or online at HealingHabitsNow.com. That's HealingHabitsNow.com.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: What to say, what to say. That often is the challenge for a lot of believers as we are sharing our faith with others. Now, we know certainly that there's um, uh, sort of a dualistic component when it comes to uh, the whole matter of being a Christian. Certainly, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and our neighbor as ourself. And we are also to go and to share the good news of this gospel into all of the world. Uh, The Great Commandment and the Great Commission and yet for a lot of us uh, the great the great um, commandment yeah we we can do okay with that but we find ourselves oftentimes challenged particularly in this day and age in fulfilling our responsibility in partaking in the sharing of the great commission. Um, That sense of sharing your faith with someone who wishes to be combative. They want to get into an argument with you. You are fearful, perhaps, because you just don't want confrontation. You've never experienced sharing your faith with someone before, and you're afraid to open up the proverbial can of worms because there's this atheist in the next cubicle that's just been dying to pick a fight with you. How do you go about Sharing your faith under these circumstances, particularly in a region like the San Francisco Bay Area, where we are wrought with paganism and atheism and doubt, and those that would feel as if anybody who believes in Christianity or the Jesus of the Bible must clearly be nuts. Well, Donald Johnson joins us to offer insights. He's written a new book called How to Talk to a Skeptic, an easy-to-follow guide for natural conversations and effective Apologetics. And Donald, great to have you on the program tonight.
1: Thanks for having me, Craig. I appreciate
0: it. You come at this from a very rich educational background. I'll mention for the benefit of listeners, you have a BA in theology um, from San Jose Christian College, so you've been here in the Bay Area, an MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University, and an MA in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville. So you've you've gone to some pretty well known schools and received quite the deep education. Now, sharing this whole topic of apologetics, some Christians hear that and they kind of get put off and they go, oh, that's for an expert. That is for somebody like Hank Hanegraaff or um, somebody like a Donald Johnson to engage in. I, as just the everyday average Christian, can't possibly be expected to engage a skeptic in some discourse of Christian apologetics, can I?
1: (laughs) Well, I think if you approached it that way, that you have to have the big uh, education um, yeah, you're right. We probably wouldn't, and that's one of the uh, problems. But no, I wrote the book specifically to address people who don't have the education, who uh, don't necessarily have the conversational debating skills of a William Lane Craig or someone like that. They're not interested in getting into the combative argument. Uh, no, this is this is for people who you know have that uncle who comes over on Thanksgiving and has a lot of questions or that co-worker, and it's specifically addressed to show you that, yeah, you can have a constructive conversation with even the most uh, hardened skeptics.
0: And I guess at the end of the day, Don, this is not really about engaging in debate um, or demonstrating our um, uh, verbal skills at confrontation. Uh, it really comes down to that core issue of being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Craig. That's exactly when I think of apologetics. It's First Peter three fifteen. It's the verse you just quoted. It's just having um, good questions and then the good answer, the, uh, the the understanding of the Jesus story that you can share with people, but doing it in a way that's not going to lead to a dead end.
0: So what is it about us as Christians, particularly in this day and age? And you've spent a good time here in the San Francisco Bay Area, so you're fully aware of, of some of the, of the intellectual proudness of our Bay Areans here who, uh, who tend to um, uh, celebrate paganism and uh, atheism and and uh, love to engage in barbed uh, debate with Christians and, and, and tear us down. Does some of this fear come out of a sense that, well, we, we're trying to avoid confrontation, um, we're, we're concerned we won't be able to articulately respond to their questions or their comments, and, and maybe a good dose of our own sense of anxieties in all of this? I just wonder how much of this goes to just to the heart of a lot of believers today being uh, well, biblically illiterate and, and finding themselves and feeling themselves unprepared to share their faith.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is that we don't feel like we have those answers. But on the other hand, it's partially, I think, some mistakes that we make in approaching the skeptic that leads us into that defensive position. So, I mean, we're scared that we're not going to have the right answer. But I think in my approach, I've learned over the years, I mean, I used to be that guy. I used to be that guy who just liked to debate and always tried to have just the right answer and just the right comeback at, at the right time. And I learned over the years that doesn't actually usually end very well. You usually end up in a roadblock. And so now I I stand back a little bit and ask a lot of questions at the beginning and try to listen a lot and move the, the conversation in a direction where you're not on the defensive all the time and you don't have to have all those answers. And you're actually trying to get the skeptic to do the thinking and to have some answers for their own views and how they understand the world and how they understand Christianity. So it's not so much you're right, it's not so much that it's a battle between two people, but a constructive relationship building conversation where both sides have to add something to the mix.
0: Sadly oftentimes these kinds of conversations end up in one feeling as if they have to defend the faith, meaning they're 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 put on the defensive and so here we might feel um, wholly short sure to answer challenges concerning the, uh, certain scientific points or uh, points related to. Uh observations about so-called uh, errancy in Scripture, things of this sort. I mean, oftentimes we'll see this sort of distown, distilled down by some as a debate between um, faith or science, for example, or or the rational or irrational. So you're, you're not suggesting that we, we engage to set ourselves up for debate, but rather, what, engage a person? Is this as much about sharing our faith? Is it also getting the person that we're talking to to get them to share their heart and where they're coming from?
1: Yeah, I think that's the key is, first of all, to to understand where they're coming from. And so on two levels, well, really on three levels, I ask them what kind of background they have. You know, tell me a little bit about your life and if you have any experience in Christianity or the Church. And then I ask them what they think uh, to be true about the world as far as uh, how do you answer the big questions of life? I understand that you reject Christianity. Okay, tell me what you do accept, though. Give me a positive case for something that you think is actually true not just what you think is false. And then I ask them what they think Christianity actually teaches. And I think if you set out your conversation just, just trying to find out those three uh, facts about the person in a very relational way and doing a lot of listening and not not defending Christianity at all, not jumping in when they throw an objection or or some sort of uh, sarcastic comment, you know, just, just let that go and just listen. And what ends up happening is you can develop a comparison of worldviews. So way down the line, after you've learned a lot about the person, it's, it's given you a chance to then compare the Christianity that you know to be true from the Bible with their worldview and the Christianity they hold. And, and you'll inevitably find out that they don't hold to the Christianity that you do, that they're rejecting a, a, a straw man argument, or they're just a caricature of what the Bible teaches. And when you set it up like that, you ask a few questions, you set up a comparison of world views, it actually does give you a chance to come in and then share the gospel, but not in a preachy way. You're just clarifying what Christianity actually teaches. You can say, oh, well, that's interesting. I understand where you're coming from, but let me share with you how I understand the Bible and how I understand Christianity, and then we can, uh, we can talk on that level. So it's a lot of clarification and sharing the bio, or sharing the gospel then in a non-confrontational, very relational way.
0: You use a word that I want to have you elaborate upon when we return after a time out. You use the word relational, and I think there can be some important insights and keys extracted from this one word as we talk about how to talk to a skeptic. My guest is Donald Day Johnson. This is his new book, by the way, newly published by to put my cheaters on here, Bethany House, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Jarrell is laughing in there. Hey, you reach a certain age, kiddo, you know, you, you got to put the cheaters on. Also, the book available through Amazon.com, and uh, we'll share more in our conversation. Dig a bit deeper into this topic. How do you go about successfully sharing your faith, giving that answer for the hope that lies within as you talk to a skeptic?
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson with us tonight. to look at his new book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. Now you used a word just before the break, um, Donald, that perhaps really brings this down into a core perspective that all of us need to keep in mind when we're sharing our faith with somebody else. You used the word relational or relationship. And at the end of the day, that's really what this is about, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're engaging in a relationship with another person as we are sharing our faith, as we talk about what? Our relationship with Jesus Christ in the hope of what? That someday they too will also enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ. Makes it a lot less intimidating that way, if you put it in those terms, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Craig. But skeptics don't want to think of themselves as a project, and if they get the sense that the Christian views them as a project, someone to uh, defeat in a debate, or even someone to get saved, or, you know, an impersonal project, and that's not going to work. And so it's really important that we do sort of look at our own hearts, and when we, you know, the guy in the cubicle next, next to us, we do have to see him as someone loved by God, and who God wants to spend eternity with, right? And so, yeah, the, the the goal of every conversation has to be the sharing of God's love, not in a non-intellectual way. I mean, I, I know some people talk about, well, you know, you just love people till they ask you why and this sort of thing, and that's good as far as it goes. But on the other hand, I think providing answers and being able to direct the conversation in a way that clarifies the gospel for that person and gives that that person reason to believe, that is also loving the person. And so, uh, yeah, it's all relational. I think, I mean, ultimately, God is love. I mean, love, I've got a chapter on that that love is the meaning of life. I mean, that's what it's all about. And so, yeah, we, we really do need to be loving the whatever skeptics we run into.
0: It would be curious to see if a study has ever been done, and I would suspect that somebody like George Barna probably has this somewhere in his library of research, of how many people uh, that we come across that may object to Christianity or put up major roadblocks to faith because they themselves... Um, come from a quote-unquote former religious background and maybe had some ill experience uh, in a church somewhere or, uh, you know, just unfortunate religious experience that somehow has turned them off to their faith and therefore they become a a staunch defender of atheism or something of that sort.
1: Yeah, if my experience is any indication, and admittedly I'm just one guy, but I talk to a lot of skeptics, the percentage I think is really high, Craig. I mean, most of the... Um, people that call in to me or that email me and, and get in contact with me, most of them that are the hardest cases uh, I think have been hurt by the Church or someone in the Church. There's there's an amazing number of ex-Christians out there that are the loudest voices for anti-Christianity. And so, yeah, that it, I think it's, it should speak to us as Christians that we need to be uh, careful how we act, but also I think careful how we teach. A lot of these people come out of groups that... We're teaching some pretty weird things and so they just reject the whole ball of wax so to speak um in in rejecting something that is admittedly sort of silly they just reject the whole thing so yeah i I would be interested to see those stats as well
0: yeah and it certainly i think would be very telling at the end of the day as you point out it's critically important to kind of keep that tucked in the back of our mind um they're, they're going to be looking at us And they're going to be testing us, in a sense, to see whether or not we really believe in this faith that we talk about. Um, And and, and toward that end, I guess it comes down to this issue of whether or not somebody has a former religious background with an axe to grind or comes at it from a particularly neutral uh, background. Nevertheless, there's somebody that we know Christ died for. And so now it's about getting in there, and I guess at at the the core initially— hearing more from them? I mean, again, we kind of tend to want to start this conversation by defending the faith, but I would imagine if we're going to kind of understand where we're going to go with all of this, isn't it more important to sort of draw them out as opposed to at the get-go trying to present our case?
1: Oh, absolutely. That's uh, that's key. I mean, if you go out and start to present your case your case right away, inevitably you will miss the mark because you don't know what they believe. I mean, you're, you're sort of shooting at a target that's not really there. You're talking to a person, uh, a person that you have in your mind, what you think they're like, that probably doesn't exist. And so, yeah, you really need to clarify that. In the same way, like I said, they're arguing with a person that they don't really know. I mean, they, they think they know what you believe. And so, yeah, you need, there needs to be a lot of sharing up front, uh, sort of clarifying positions and, and getting to know each other, I think, uh, before all of the debating takes place. Now, that's not to say that you don't Um, get into a a kind of a debate. I mean, towards the end of my conversations or my relationships, you know, it it could take several months. Like, when I talk about a conversation, I'm talking about potentially several conversations with a person. But towards the end of it, yeah, we do compare worldviews and we do um, debate. But yeah, I think that needs to come later on in the interaction.
0: Let's hop onto the phones here and get some calls in. If you've just joined us, we're visiting tonight with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. He's got a new book out called How to Talk to a Skeptic. Go first to Palo Alto, and we'll say good evening to Lee. Hey, Lee, welcome. You're on KFAX.
1: Thank you so much. I have a friend of mine who is an agnostic, but he started out as Catholic, and he's the kind of agnostic that's looking for a reason not to believe rather than seeking. And I could appreciate his intelligence, and we get along. I've known him for a long time. He's very intelligent, except for when he talks about religion, in which case he doesn't make any sense at all. So I was curious, what is the gospel in a nutshell to keep my message very short?
0: All right, good question. You want to tackle that, Donald?
1: far as the gospel in a nutshell, I tend to tell a quick story uh, that it's all about love. God created us for relationship. We went chasing off after other things and other people that were not as as valuable. And, And I tend to compare it to like a husband and a wife. A husband goes off chasing after something that's not as valuable, either alcohol, football, or a mistress, when he should be valuing and having a relationship with his wife, that's how I see the whole story of the world, that we are a people who were made to love God and we've gone chasing off after things that just aren't objectively valuable. And when you do that, you live contrary to reality, then things don't go right. It's like trying to run your car on water. It's just not going to work. You can't live contrary to reality if you do things go wrong. And so I tend to focus on love and what it means to break relationship with God. And basically, I think all of the other doctrines of Christianity flow out from that basic uh, starting point. At least the good news
0: in this case, Lee, is that you mentioned that he's an agnostic, so he's not sure. Uh, which is sometimes easier than starting with uh, an atheist who's certain (laughs) that God doesn't exist. And I guess these days that's more of a challenge. I mean, for uh, the early part of uh, the last couple of centuries, we've seen this major shift certainly in the 1960s and 70s educationally and otherwise, where all of a sudden you've made that uh, transition from having to um, uh, talk about our relationship Uh, to God versus that God is, and I guess oftentimes we almost kind of have to use that as the starting point, don't we? I mean, how can we talk about uh, forgiveness and having offended a God if they don't even quite believe that a God exists, uh,
1: Donald? Yeah, that's right, and that's why I generally start out, if someone says they're an agnostic, well, they're not, they don't believe nothing. (laughs) They do have a worldview. They do believe something about reality, and so I try to get them to explore that. How do you answer those big questions of life? How did we get here? Why are we here? What happens when we die? How then should we live? Everybody walks around with answers in their mind to those questions. They live according to something. And so I try to get them to explore that. You're, you're not agnostic about everything. And after they have sort of thought about that a little bit, then you can compare. All right, do does does those answers make sense? Does that seem to match up with the world as we know it?
0: What you're suggesting here, too, as you mentioned uh, when we came back from the break, is not necessarily a singular conversation. This may be a multiplicity of conversations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we
0: kind of get that impression. We, we think this is a lot like, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this never happens. Of course it does. But the, I met a man on the subway one day. I said, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? No, I don't. And that ensued into a following conversation. By the time we got to the next uh, train depot, bus stop, uh, taxi stand, you know, in, insert location here, uh, he had, had prayed the sinner's prayer. That does happen. Uh, But not as often as we would think. And generally, most of the people that we're going to run into that we're going to have an opportunity to share with are going to be people with whom we have some kind of ongoing contact, if not relationship. It's either the guy in the cubicle next door or the kid who delivers the newspaper or the young man who takes us out to the car every time we buy groceries and helps us bring the bags to the car, et cetera, et cetera. And so which case then, as you point out, and it dawns on me, uh, Donald, we did not come to these positions in life life overnight, and so we're not necessarily going to abandon them overnight. So this is, in a sense, a process. So if it doesn't go well the first time or that one certain conversation didn't quite end in the fashion in which you hoped it would, there's always the next time, isn't there?
1: That's an excellent point, Craig. Yeah, we we tend to want to reduce the gospel to that elevator pitch, right? Like, give it to me in the 30 seconds we have, and really, I mean, that's... I mean, I get that, I understand that, but yeah, real life doesn't generally happen that way. <laughs> you you are building relationships with people, you're, you're talking to them over time, and yeah, I, I totally agree that you, you should be able to um, spread this out and not force your apologetic argument even, or your, or your evangelistic presentation into that elevator pitch necessarily.
0: Our conversation with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson, the book, How to Talk to a Skeptic.
1: and now back to lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: We continue our conversation tonight to Donald Johnson my guest the book is called How to Talk to a Skeptic you know at the end of the day we talk about sometimes dealing with with the the hardline almost professional skeptics uh, Donald uh, I'm thinking of those in the class of a uh, Christopher Hutchins and uh, Richard D Do- Dawkins, Bill Maher, even on that list. But it's interesting, I've heard some of them debated, or some of the arguments that they put forward, and I've often thought to myself, you know, at the end of the day, it's not only Christians that are the ones that have to defend their views, these guys come out with some pretty outlandish comments as well.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. They, uh, not only do they have to defend their worldview, and you're right, I don't think they do a terribly good job of it, and and often they're not asked to, which is interesting. Most of the time, if you notice how those guys debate, is they debate against Christianity. They're not usually asked to present a positive case for materialism or whatever it is they happen to hold. And, and that's one key, I think, to talking to to either professional skeptics or the uh, uncle or the guy next door in the cubicle is that they should be asked to have present their worldview to think about it. Probably, I mean, a lot of times people haven't thought about it, and then defend that and that's a real key to having a constructive uh, conversation i think is that you have to think about what you believe in a positive way not just be anti-christian and a lot of them are anti-christian
0: we talked prior to the break with the previous caller about this whole issue of of, of the agnostic out there and I guess in this day and age, what with uh, uh, recent discoveries related to the so-called God particle, um, irreducible design, uh, things like um, intelligent design, uh, that there's more and more scientific information out there, too, that also lends credence uh, to, to the so-called Genesis account. Does that also stand in our favor in terms of sharing our faith and making it a case for the existence of God?
1: Yeah, I think the evidence, wherever you find it, is always in the Christian's favor, because if it's true, it's true, and Christianity happens to be true about all of the universe. So wherever we find truth, whether that's through scientific investigation, or philosophy, or psychology, or wherever it is, that truth is, if it's accurate, if they're not just making stuff up or presenting false claims, obviously, but if it's accurate, it's going to line up with the Christian worldview. And so, yeah, we never, be, never need to be afraid of new discoveries, you know? The truth, wherever it's found, is going to match up. And, and I think that's one key to having a good conversation, is to not, you know, sometimes we present it as, well, I mean, there's these facts over here, but I just take on faith that Jesus is my Savior. And by that I mean I put my brain in my back pocket, and I don't have to think about it anymore, and I don't have any evidence for it, but I just believe. Well, no, that, that's not the Christian way, I don't think. God God loves uh, presenting evidence to us, and he gives us plenty of it. I uh, yeah, at, at
0: the end of the day, Christianity is not some irrational belief system that we just adopt totally by faith, whether or not it might be uh, some fact here or there. I mean, the I- irony is, if we just take the time to do the research, um, we find all kinds of extra-biblical Um, uh, information uh, from the archaeological accounts and historical accounts that lead credence to the teachings of what we learn from the Bible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Every realm of of discovery, I think, uh, should be embraced by the Christian. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, science is a good one. Archaeology is excellent, and it consistently confirms the biblical accounts. Whenever um, science is done right, and, and I guess that's the key. I mean, sometimes science is presented as a philosophy rather than a, a uh, mode of, of gathering knowledge, and so they say, well, science has disproven God. But what they mean by that is there is nothing that exists besides matter, and that's all we... Well, no, I mean, we can't accept that. But in general, yeah, every sort of, of uh, knowledge-gathering endeavor that humans do, it's going to line up with Christianity, and so we can embrace that.
0: What do we do with comments uh, such as the person who says, well... I've done some studying of Christianity, and I find that there are uh, pagan myths and accounts of this sort that are made up out of the mystic world that seem to be similar to some things that I read in the Gospels, so why should I believe what the Bible says any more than a pagan myth?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, and that's a very popular objection these days, and becoming more so, it seems. Uh, what I'd like to do is, first of all, clarify, all right, what parallel myth are you talking about? Let's Let's look at the data and see what the facts actually are. And then, some guys, they do just stop there, and, and that's fine. I mean, they try to disassociate Christianity from all the pagan myths. Actually, how, the, the approach I take is that I embrace a lot of the parallels that are out there. I say, yeah, you know what, there's, there's some parallels. I mean, uh, there's some pagan myths that are uh, similar, in some respects, to the Christian worldview, but I say that's actually to be expected, I think, if Christianity is true. Because according to Christianity, God is the creator of all. He put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then humanity spread out from there. So, and he's revealed himself, Romans 1 assures us, that no one is left without knowledge of God. So we have this general revelation to all people at all times. If that's true, it makes sense that when people try to explain reality through their myths, that there would actually be some parallels, that they're, if, they're, if they're interacting with an objective reality, and that is the God of the Bible, that there would be some similarities. And so I take sort of a C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton approach to this and say, those myths are a precursor, they're a shadow. It's not that Christianity took the stories from those myths, it's that those myths actually took their stories from Christianity. It's the other way around. And so Christianity is this, the actual story, the true story, the historical story, God in time and space. And the myths are the shadows that are, uh, they, they come from that, I think. And so, yeah, I, I take sort of a... A broader approach to that, embrace the truths that we can embrace with people, and then try to show them that, well, Christianity is not like, it's not the same as those myths. I mean, it's history. Jesus appeared as a man in Galilee 2,000 years ago. So that that's, you know, a, a hard fact. What but, about
0: those that take the dismissive approach to say, well, you know, I've I've seen the way these Christians act. They behave fairly badly. I've seen the hypocrisy within Christianity. And uh, I don't go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. What of that argument?
1: Yeah, that's a common one, and I think uh, on one hand you can sort of uh, take a coldly logical approach and say, <laughs> say <"Well>, you agree. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah, you agree. Hey, uh, you know, we're all sinners; we're all hypocritical at some point. Uh, but that's what Christianity teaches. Christianity doesn't teach that we're all perfect, and that you know, if if Christianity is true, then all people will be perfect. I mean, you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. We're sinners, saved by grace, and and uh, being transformed into the likeness of Christ, but that's an ongoing process. And so, on one hand, it, I mean, logically, it's not a very sound argument. I think, just sort of emotionally and psychologically, you want to just embrace that and say, you know what, I, I've hurt people, I've been hurt by people, I mean, that's how, that's how life is, and I apologize if that works, you know, on behalf of my fellow Christians. But, really, that doesn't speak to Jesus. I mean, certainly Jesus didn't teach us to do that, right? And Jesus wasn't like that. So let's talk about Jesus uh, and and see if if his message resonates.
0: It's amazing when you think about it um, in the arena of Christian uh, apologetics, how logical so much of this is if you just bring it back to the core issue of being relationship-centric, and as we mentioned a couple of segments ago, at the end of the day, that's really what this is all about anyway. You're not trying to create animosity. You're trying to build a relationship, and you wish to build a relationship to share your faith in the hopes that the person that you're sharing with will sometime or someday have a relationship with Jesus too. And so when you look at it from that angle, then this becomes far less about trying to win my point or beat you down or, uh, you know, be the winner of the forensic uh, team, but rather to simply love a person to the saving knowledge of Christ. The book, How to Talk to a Skeptic, published again by Bethany House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks to author Donald Johnson, also a Christian apologist, for being with us tonight and offering some great insights.